Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo, because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, This is being released on Monday, November 20. I don't know why I'm trying to do the math instead of just looking at a calendar. Yeah, why are you not looking at a calendar? And it comes... I I don't know. 23rd. Monday, November 23rd. (laughs) It's like I forget how we start the podcast every single gosh darn week. Gosh darn it. Um, okay, but today is not the 23rd. It is Tuesday the 17th. That is true. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. How was your weekend? Um, oh gosh, it was fine. I, I wasn't ready for that question for some reason either. Speaking of forgetting the ways that we start this podcast, it's like that's the first (laughs) time I've ever asked you how your weekend is. I feel like it's been a, a while because we've been talking about the election and other things and Halloween and that's true. That's true. How is life post election? It it is goodish. Um, so my husband continues to uh, find himself at home with me today, as there has been another exposure at his office. So that's lovely. <laughs> I went down to get lunch. Another uh, COVID right exposure, just to be clear. Yes. Not like. What else would it have been? <laughs> you know our listeners can't see what you just did. I know. I don't even know what that's called. Flashing? Flashing. <laughs> I just wanted it to be crystal clear what you were talking about. Yes. Uh, COVID exposure. Okay. Anyway, so I went down to grab lunch just before we started recording And he sits on the couch because he doesn't have a home office. I offered to set one up in our guest bedroom for him. He said, no, fine, whatever. So he sits on the couch. He's on speakerphone with somebody who sounds like his boss. And so I'm trying to be really quiet. I'm like catching the microwave before it starts beeping. And then I realize he is full on getting his annual evaluation right now on speakerphone in our living room. And I was like, oh, really? Yes, with me in the background making my lunch. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, clearly he wasn't worried about it. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> so bizarre. How uh, different you two are. Right? You would have had it like all set up, perfect, quiet, by yourself. Even this morning, I did an early morning presentation to a group And so I post on the door to my office, I am busy these times, please don't take a shower between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. because it will be too loud as I'm presenting. Now, he's just like chilling on the couch, he's got two cats on his lap, getting his (laughs) annual evaluation. Um, That made me realize you don't get annual evaluations. It's true. Instead, I get a ton of tiny little ones all year long. That's true. But 
I don't know. Maybe that's a perk of your job. Maybe not so much a perk. I don't know. What's that like? Well, my guess is most HR folks would say it's actually probably a better practice, right? Like they always say, don't don't leave it all to the annual review. Right. People should know how their performance is throughout the year. Um, and so that piece is good, right? Like if something goes horribly wrong, I can adjust and adapt. Um, I can't think of a time things have gone horribly wrong, but if it did. Knock on wood. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm often getting feedback from boards. Yeah. Exactly. Boards don't often know what they're talking about. <laughs> so it's nice because I can take it all with a grain of salt, right? Like their opinion of me doesn't determine my salary. It might determine whether they hire me or not again, and I'm okay with that. I was just going to say it probably ter- determines if you're hired. Based on my recontract rate, I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, that's the philosophy I live by as well for people that I manage or supervise. You know, by the time we get to the annual um, evaluation, nothing should be right. a surprise, right? These are things that should have been talking about all yep. year long. But you're always like, as the receiver, when I get mine, I'm always worried, like, well, maybe it's not their philosophy. Right. Maybe they do have this list that they've kept for mm-hmm. 12 months that they're ready to just unleash. Did you ever have, have you ever had a boss do that? Um, Not to that extreme, but I definitely have had some things come up um, over the years in an annual review that I was like, huh, like, well, why didn't you talk to me about this before? I had a boss very briefly, luckily, who uh, basically kept a journal on each of her employees and it was very specific. So it'd be like, in our staff meeting no. on January 15, you said this, and I think that was inappropriate. And I was like, that was eight months ago. <laughs> Why didn't you say that then? No. How demeaning. Yeah, yeah it was pretty awful. Um, and I just wonder, like, how much time she spent doing that every single day, I'm sure. Right. Because she had a team of 10 she was managing. Who's got time for that? Nobody. Wow. Is she still in her position? I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Funny enough, I did not keep You didn't keep tabs her. on her. So you, <laughs> your journal of all of her misdoings, um, you haven't kept that going since you left? Nope. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, how have you been the last week? I've been good. I've been good. I actually left the state. Which is big one. I know, I know. It's big decision, but was helping a family member move back cross country, and so was helping was quite a drive. So really got some time in Middle America. Oh, lovely. Yeah, which I think it's you know obviously those um, it doesn't happen as frequent now during a global pandemic but i think as a practice it's nice to do cross country road trips of this huge country that we have you don't think so oh my god they are the worst oh my god what? i love them i love them well, first see this thing, is your your love of americana of i love all things you americana love of course <clears throat> and i just love Seeing the small towns and the farmland, remembering that we actually 
though it's getting less and less, do have a lot of wide open space still left in this country, like the whole state of Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you just get to see how other people live. It's good for perspective. Hmm. Not so much for you, huh? No, no. When my husband and I first moved out here back in 08, every year for Christmas, we would pack up, get the cats in the car, drive cross country to Michigan, and hole up there for a week or two. And then, well, and at that time, both of us were working for universities, so we got two weeks off for the holidays. Um, Nice. And then as we started to make adult money, we realized... (laughs) We didn't have to do that anymore, and we could fly, and I've never been happier. I, I don't remember the last time I've made that drive, and I'm so grateful. I hate it. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. I love it. Mm-mm. I love taking the different routes. Like, you can go go north with Route 80, go in the middle with Route 70, go low, like Route 40, or even Route 10. That's real low. I just think it's great. So which one did you take? We took 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you missed the I-80 truck stop. I mean, that's really the only reason mm-hmm. to even enjoy Iowa. I know. In Kansas, I feel like, and I really love Kansas. It's not dig on Kansas because I'm from Ohio. So I don't think it's really that different. But um, it just lulls you into a false sense of um, monotony. Because mm-hmm. then, like, we hit Kansas City, and it's like, oh, my God, what is this? Oh, my gosh, I have to follow the sign, and there's an overpass, an underpass, and i got to make sure I'm staying on that. where, like, for eight hours across Kansas, you're just like, <laughs> you know, on cruise control. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you have to pay attention, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. There are more complicated road systems in cities. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so a uh, real quick road trip t- uh, story. So we're driving cross-country for the holidays. No matter what, either going to Michigan or coming back, we would always end up in some sort of snowstorm because it's December, of course, and we'd have to add a day to our trip. So we're driving it, and at this time, again, I mean, we are like, we're young. I think I was probably in grad school. So we are driving my Ford Focus. <laughs> yep. Two cats in the back, two of us up front, and uh, we start to hit one of those snowstorms, and it's getting icy and blizzardy, and of course on I-80, because really to Michigan, you got to take the northern route. Yep. Um, tons and tons and tons of trucks, and finally we're like, okay, we got to get off. And just as we decide that, two semis, jackknife, <gasps> and my husband, I- this He went is- underneath them. Like- <laughs> A la Christmas vacation. (laughs) If only the focus was that small. Yeah. But he, I mean, he just zigzagged so perfectly, like didn't miss a beat, wasn't even like heart racing by the end. I mean, I was ready to shit a brick and he was just like, okay, um, we're going to get off at this next exit uh, for the night and this is where we're staying. And as we do that, this huge light bursts over the exit that we're going to and then everything goes dark. And so we pull out and we go to the first hotel and their generators have just kicked back on. We discover there's been a massive outage. Some breaker somewhere went. And we didn't even realize we were across the street from the I-80 truck stop until the next morning because there was such an awful blizzard. That's funny. 
Anyway, and that's why we don't drive anymore. <laughs> well, look, I know this is a podcast about nonprofits, and we'll get back to it in a minute, but I have a funny road trip story of when Do I was... Do we have to talk about nonprofits today? Yeah, maybe we, we don't. <laughs> we don't. Send us your road trip stories. Seriously, I would love to hear them. I don't care if they have nothing to do with nonprofits. Um, oh, my gosh. So this is a classic story. It's like a core story of my family's, right? Mm -hmm. Told at Thanksgivings and reminisced and laughed about every time we get together as family. So my family, again, grew up in Ohio. We used to drive down to Florida twice a year for the holidays usually and then spring break. We had family that had a place down there that we stayed at. And it was a big drive. So you know, my brother and I were little and we had a big conversion van. And ever since we were little, like all the way through high school, we would do these drives. And it would take, you know, 20, 23 hours to get down to where we were going. So I'm 15. And we start on the drive and we are just, we're not even out of Ohio. It's our first stop. And um, we have one of these big conversion vans that has like the back bench turns into a bed. I don't know if you remember that. And then it's got like <laughs> two bucket seats in the middle and two in the front. I love yes. those vans. They're sweet vans. And my mom was sleeping in the back and I was in the middle and my brother and my dad were up front. So they pull over into a, a rest area. Oh, and we have our cat in the car. <laughs> we pull over at a rest area and um, my brother and my dad are like, we're going to get out and go. Brittany, do you have to go? Nope, I'm fine. But then, like, you know, 15 seconds after they left, I'm like, I probably should go. I'm 15. I don't know why I feel like this has something to do with it, but um, I didn't put any shoes on. I just got out of the car. Yeah, I know. Ew. Ew. <laughs> Into a rest area? I did. Yep. <clears throat> yep. My 15-year-old hippie self was like, I don't need any shoes. And so I just left the van. With my mom and cat in it. My mom's sleeping, cat. <clears throat> Come back out. The van is gone. <gasps> this is... <laughs> this is pre-cell phones. Okay? I might have had a pager, but I definitely didn't have a cell phone. And I'm like, huh... So I kind of sit down, I wait a while, and I'm like, are they playing a prank on me? I'm like looking around the parking lot. Finally, I go, I'm talking to these people at a VFW stand that is selling orange juice and um, brownies to people. And I'm like, hey, look, um, so I'm pretty sure my family just left me. <laughs> and, and I'm not really sure what I should do. And they said, okay, well, why don't you use the payphone and call 911? And I'm like, really? So the only time I've ever called 911 in my life. Wow. So, well done, first off. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So I call 911, and they're asking me about the car. And, and this could be a long story, so I'm going to wrap it up. But they asked me about the car and everything. Long story short, my dad and my brother got in the car, and they thought – that I just, because they didn't see me get out, they thought that I just went in the back to sleep where my mom was. So they just left and they kept driving. They kept driving 40 
five minutes <laughs> down the highway until a police officer pulled them over. They still did not know why the police officer was pulling them over. Police officer says, hey, have you been to a rest area lately? They say no, because it was 45 minutes ago. My mom wakes up at the time, and they're like, oh, my gosh, it's the cat. The cat got out. How they would know the cat belonged to the car, I have no idea. <laughs> the cat's on 911, right. meowing at them, letting them know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mom wakes up and is like, where's Brittany? <laughs> it took two hours for them to come back and get me. They oh almost crossed the state line into Kentucky. God. <laughs> That's a way better story. When, oh my God. When they came back, it was straight out of National Lampoons. It's like my dad didn't even stop the van. He just like slowed down and threw the door open and was like, jump in because he was so embarrassed. Meanwhile, I'm like waving to all my friends at the VFW stand. <laughs> And they're like, bye, Brittany. Glad you found your family. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it awesome? Oh, my God. And the fact that you at 15 were just like making buddies, calling the cops, no big deal. Well, yeah. I would have been a mess. Well, you know, it's like, you know, little kid, did your family leave you? Like, I was 15. I wasn't like I was eight. I mean, thank goodness. But still, it's like, how did you... How did your family leave you when you're almost an adult? <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. It's a great one to bring up to get my dad to feel guilty still. Yeah. Like, did you get to like choose where you all had lunch or dinner? 25 that day? years later. <laughs> Absolutely. I milk it okay, every, every chance I get. Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, all right. So. If you've got a really good cross-country road trip story, please send it to us. I want to hear it. Those are – that that I think yours is going to be hard to beat. That was amazing. <laughs> if you can make your story tie into nonprofits, you get double points. Exactly. Yes. Even better. <laughs> I did get stuck on I-70 in a snowstorm. On the way to a nonprofit conference. Oh, Does that count? That definitely counts. Totally shut down the highway. We had passed the last exit. And so we just sat there for like two hours in this blizzard. Oh. Uh, not knowing what to do. We had called ahead or we had called to like a hotel at the exit behind us to see if we could get a night. And we're co contemplating like literally walking. Oh my gosh. And abandoning, then abandoning the car. Yeah. I mean, what else do you do? We're like, we're, we're going to run out of gas. Oh, my We've gosh. We've been running it this whole time because, you know, it's freezing up there. Anyway. Yes. All for the greater good of nonprofits. <laughs> so speaking of nonprofits, what were we going to talk about today? Nonprofit road trips. <laughs> you can email us at nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. No. Uh, today we are talking about... Board diversity. Really switching gears here. <laughs> Nothing to do with road trips whatsoever. No. Board diversity. What about it? Um, not many have it. Most want it. And uh, it's hard to get. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and how do you get it? <laughs> so uh, the context for this conversation 
uh, comes about because, first off, um, I do some trainings on diversity, equity, inclusion in the board space. Um, and, of course, you can add in some additional letters there. Uh, somebody, like, I think, attempted to call me out oh, really? <laughs> recently because I wasn't using one of the, the acronyms they had been taught in their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, part of that is because I work with so many different types of organizations that DEI covers the vast majority. Like this was a social justice group, and so they've added a J for justice. Oh, which is awesome. Um, I've heard, uh, I think it's an A for accessibility in arts and education spaces. I mean, all that's great. But anyway, broad strokes. We're talking about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion on boards in these trainings. And um, it's been really interesting. And I know I've mentioned this on the pod before, like pre-COVID, pre the protests and everything we had this summer and just this moment in time where we're like having really important, intense conversations about racism in, I think, new and more extensive ways, uh, boards are suddenly like, oh shit, we should do that too. Look at all these white folks. So we thought we should talk about that on the pod. I know we've kind of, we've talked around it a bit. We've talked about the lack of diversity on boards. You know, studies indicate anywhere from 75 to 95% of board members are white in the nonprofit sector. Um, and the leadership of boards, even more so, even more white. So let's let's chat about it. Yeah. Well, what I find so interesting about that, and we've talked about this before, right, of um, context of where our experiences here in Colorado, that we live in um, a pretty white community, though we have more diversity than people think. And we have found that out through different trends reports. One in four people identify as a person of color, which is amazing. But that has been touted historically as a reason why um, boards don't have the diversity here in this county. Right. Well, oh, um, you know, there's just not that many people of color here, right? So I think it's fascinating, your statistic of 75 to 90% are white, and that's a national statistic. So yeah. that it's happening even in more diverse communities. Yeah. Uh, so this is, an, this is not a nonprofit-specific example, but I saw it yesterday, and I was appalled. Um, I mean, I feel like since... Since I was a kid, at least, in advertising, there's always diversity, right? Like, you don't open up the Old Navy catalog without seeing a beautiful rainbow of skin tones. Uh, but this this was for uh, my hometown, little Holland, Michigan. Um, I'm not going to call out the entity specifically that created this. Um, but it was a, you know, come visit Holland, come shop here. You know, Holland's so great all white. Every single piece of footage had white people in it. Wow. And that was it. I was shocked. And then of course, luckily, you know, the pile on of all the comments being like, I'm sorry, where's everybody else? Um, Because Holland has, um, I want to say it's like 30, maybe even 35% of Holland identifies as people of color. So Where are they? (laughs) Wow. What a misstep and what a misstep during now where it's like there is hyper focus on this. 
And that's kind of why we're bringing this back up is that, yeah, we've always talked about we need more diversity on our boards. But now organizations, they have um, more accountability for it than they ever have. And, And so, you know, what is that translating into? Mm-hmm. Is it well, actually I, happening now? And I feel like we also now have, uh, I don't want to say access, uh, because there, this always existed, but I think there's maybe more of a, an awareness now. Of or knowledge? The, yeah, probably that. This understanding of all of the systems at play that impact board diversity, right? So it's, it's not just going out and recruiting people of color. Like, we need to have this larger internal introspection. We need to really sit down as a board and talk about what barriers we have and then work on recruiting for more diverse candidates, right? So it's a much more holistic perspective, which I appreciate, but it also means boards are pretty ill-equipped to have those conversations at this juncture. Well, what about the sentiment of, well, our board percentage-wise reflects the same percentage within the community of diversity. Uh, that... First off, I don't see that ever. <laughs> Secondly. <laughs> first off, that's not true. <laughs> right. But assuming it was. Well, I think what's actually more important is looking at your client population. Mm-hmm. You know, who you're serving, what the demographics of those people are. If you are, if you are a human services organization, you most certainly – have overrepresentation of our most marginalized populations. Like there, there's just no way around that right now. So if you're saying you're representing the general community, but your client population, it, it shows some sort of overrepresentation, your board should as well. I mean, because the whole point is to have a board that has these broader perspectives, that includes people with lived experience, that really understands the issue and how it plays out in your community. Right. Well, you and I were talking about this the other day, and I was thinking back on the days of different organizations I've worked with that um, diversity meant there's men and women. Right. There's different generations. Mm-hmm. There's some with advanced degrees and some with more advanced degrees. right yeah well and that still gets touted like if if i start to challenge a board's demographics they will almost 100 percent of the time the first thing they'll say is but look at how gender representative we are look at how uh you know generational representative we are i i've sat on a number of boards where i was like their first millennial and that was a big get right and that's not sufficient. I know, exactly. But I think that that's still true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and again, going back to like the leadership of boards, we still continue to see massive gender inequity there. The vast majority of board chairs and, and even just the executive committee, they're led by men. They're led by white men specifically. Yeah. You know, and for me, I've had kind of the um, unique experience of working for organizations that have, um, for the most part, all women-run boards Mm -hmm. Um, because I've worked for women's empowerment agencies. And so even those that did allow men on the board, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. Which is true because yeah. some don't. Um, <clears throat> they weren't. They were in the minority. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I was talking to um, a client recently, and there there was one board member who was super sticky on this. Um, older white man, as you might expect. Um, and he was doing the same thing. Well, look at, we, we got all these women, we got all these men. And I said, okay, well, I've, I've looked at your board roster for the last 10 years. Every single board chair has been a man. Um, and you actually serve a pretty large percentage of, uh, trans people and gender nonconforming people. Mm-hmm. Where are they represented? Cause all you're giving me is a binary right now. Right. So yes. like even you, you keep wanting to tout that, but it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Like, let's really get to the, to the, I don't know what word I want. I want you all to see how I'm holding my hands and understand <laughs> what word that means. <laughs> well, how many places have you worked too where they're like, we need to do some board recruitment. We need to find some people that have capacity. Oh, God. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, speaking of actually, did you see Vu's um, blog this week? I did not read the whole thing, but I saw parts of it. So against having any kind of board requirement for giving. Yes. Yep. That's a big one. So this is interesting. Um, And I think this is an interesting place where these two things meet. So, or these two topics meet. Um, I think part of the reason that boards are having some of these conversations more seriously beyond just the moment of time we're in is that funders are starting to shift. Mm. funders are saying we want a real plan right you can keep saying that you're trying to recruit more diverse candidates but we want to see a plan for how you're actually going to be doing that Mm -hmm. but that often is in conflict when those same funders are the ones saying you have to have 100 percent board giving right so vu's article which of course i will include in the show notes as always um basically says you know if we want to be truly equitable organizations we need to get rid of a board giving requirement um, and not just like an amount, but just period, you know, that goal of a hundred percent board giving should not be part of the equation anymore. Well, I mean, it goes back to your statement earlier about looking at what barriers we have in place that would keep people from being able to participate on the board. Yep. Yep. And, and I think it's a really interesting one too, because he talks about some of the, um, the cultural dynamics involved with money and philanthropy that I think we often don't talk about. Um, and I, I've certainly been guilty of this too in saying like, well, just give something personally meaningful. If that's yeah. $5, that's $5. Right. Um, but, you know, really not addressing the, the different perceptions and connections people have with money and philanthropy. Like that, I think that's the disconnect that I've had um, in continuing to promote that, that kind of policy that we really need to break down a bit further. Well, and it goes back to what we've talked about before about – you know, what are, we need our policies ultimately to be in line with our values of the organization and not driven by funders. Right. And that's where this came from. Exactly. And while I do still think that it's the responsibility of every board member to fundraise, I think that that looks very different. There's a lot of different ways to do that. And that does not mean that um, they necessarily have to, you know, ask their friends for money, give money of themselves. There's so many other ways that people can participate in fundraising that 
uh, doesn't have that specific um, literal monetary component to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and here's where it goes back to funders, though. So right now, if you put on an application 50% board giving, some funders will pull will throw your application in the bin, right? Like you're you're done, you're out of running for whatever grants, right? And so it it is really this push pull where as a sector, if if that's something we want to change, we're gonna have to figure out a way to address it with funders, because there are gonna be plenty of organizations who feel too scared, quite frankly, to make that change, even if they want to, even if they feel like it's better values aligned for them to get rid of any kind of gift requirement, they're not going to do that until funders stop requiring it as well. Well, we talk so much about power dynamics, and I think maybe a power dynamic we have not really brought up specifically is within the board itself. So we've talked mm-hmm. about, you know, board and leadership, board and staff, but what about the power dynamic that happens within the board? And oh, God. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so nuanced and yet palpable, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, whether somebody is able to give a really big gift or a really little gift or that may that creates a power dynamic and even though that's right. not supposed to be for public consumption or n- knowing it still is and mm-hmm. and we have i've worked at places before that are like look this is the give it's got to be this amount but if you have trouble doing that we have scholarships oh i hate that and what does that do oh my god yeah that is awful I mean, if you really want your board to be able to work together, I'm not saying that people on boards shouldn't give. If they have the capacity and they feel inclined, I think they should. But it shouldn't be part of their board service so that it's setting ranking Mm -hmm. within the board itself. Right. Well, and this just goes back to like how we value money in the sector above other contributions. I think Vu might have said as well. I. I've spent a little bit too much time as of late just reimagining what nonprofit boards could look like. Um, and I want to be clear, right? You. Like a lot of my bread and butter is because boards are so dysfunctional. <laughs> so you don't want to, you don't want to cure it right away. <laughs> but I really would like, it, it's awful. I mean, these organizations one after another, after another have these issues with boards. And so I've just been thinking about, okay, what would it look like if we, upended our current assumptions about nonprofits and their boards. I feel like it would be much more of a group of advisors, people who understand the work, have maybe experienced it, have been part of the systems, and talk about how to make systemic change. Not, you know, how to run the housing program, not how to do the evaluation, but how them in their organization is part of this larger community and really can be part of fueling the change that needs to happen. Yeah. That would be amazing. But that's not a reality yet. So anyway, going back to this issue, boards are talking about it. They want to do it. They don't know how to do it. So here's some tips or tricks, shall we say? Love it. Some practical Um, info? Practical info. Okay, first off, board members out there, if you are talking about addressing issues of diversity in your board, 
first off, you do need to have that larger conversation. What are the barriers? What are you doing that is making it so that people of color either can't access your board, don't feel comfortable on your board? There's something there. And to continue to assume that it's the candidates and not you is a position of privilege based in white supremacy. So cut that shit out. Do the introspection. There you go. You're probably going to need to help with that, which means you have to commit budget dollars to this. Mm-hmm. Big work like this, big change doesn't just happen. So whether that is bringing in training for your board, having facilitated discussions, uh, paying to get things translated, right? Like there's going to be expense related to this and you need to be ready. You also need to look at those issues of power and privilege within the board. Like Brittany, you're so spot on there. So much of board dysfunction is because of those internal power dynamics that don't get talked about, don't get addressed, and people just leave. Right? Right? Well, and think about it. I mean, we see it. We bear the brunt of it as staff. But who's going to bring it up to them? The CEO? The ED? Right. Hey, I I notice you're being shitty to each other. Like, I know you're being, I notice you're being catty or I notice, like, they're not, because that power dynamic. Right. Those are all the bosses, allegedly. Mm -hmm. So. What happens when a board member is a really major donor and they're the ones that are problematic? Right. Right. Yeah. So actually. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) This is the Zoom slight lag. So this is where actually maybe to get rid of those power dynamics, board members don't give it all. What? Boom. But Nia, that is a revenue line item on my budget. What am I supposed to do? Figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know what? Oh my gosh. It's like opening up stuff to me. We are so, we are so, um, like, obsessed with this board giving, right? Mm -hmm. And I have also never seen it work. I mean, we, every place I've ever worked has a line item, board giving. But the truth is, board giving, in quotations, giving... Or inverted commas. I was listening to a podcast this weekend and she's from England. She kept saying inverted commas. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, can like we, It can come in many different forms, right? And then we start nitpicking about what, what qualifies as board giving. Right. Right? And someone's like, well, my company that I own sponsored this event. Isn't that board giving? Well, sure, that's board giving, but that goes under the event line item. That's mm-hmm. not in this board giving line item over here, you know? Right. Well, what about my friends who I brought to this event who then made a $5,000 donation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, that's in that event line item. That's not over here. Like, over here is just this. And it ends up pissing everybody off anyways, right? Oh, yeah. Because the impact on fundraising is far greater than just like them writing a check. But yet in that one line item, it's only the check writing. I don't know that I've ever come across an organization that has a board giving line item where people will say that is accurately accounted for. Right. Exactly. 
So why do it? Because it just ticks them off anyways. And rightly oh, so. Yeah. Like, I, I get it. And I'm also tasked with creating a budget. And so you can't, you can't take from Peter to pay Paul. I don't know. Whatever that is. Yeah. You know, you can't say you got to raise X amount in this event, but then take some of the event revenue and allocate it somewhere else. Right. It doesn't work that way. No. So... Yeah, just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Yeah. Well, I think this is an interesting conversation, too, in light of uh, the current fundraising moment we're in, where so many organizations are looking to shift things up, right? We're getting away from big events, at least in person right now. Um, and so I am hearing a lot of clients like really looking to their boards. How, how do we do this? How can you open your networks up to us? Um, and so... I want to say two things on that. First off, um, without proper support, guidance, et cetera, that's not going to happen. And it's certainly not going to happen effectively. <laughs> and number two, I think maybe I have three things. Number two, <laughs> um, if we are looking for more diverse boards, we need to recognize that their networks are also going to be diverse right. and different. And they might need to engage differently. Right. So saying, you know, here is our sponsorship packet that has worked for everything else. Right. It might not work. Oh my gosh. So true. And then three, I also think we have this tendency to say that diverse candidates, which I'm also putting in air quotes, um, but, you know, people of color can't fundraise, don't have networks, et cetera. And I think it's meant in this place of like, we, we don't want to um, overburden these people. Right. We don't want to make assumptions, but at the same time, we're making an assumption that they don't have access to this, which is not true. Absolutely. We are all networked. We might just be networked differently. Right. And so it's really important to recognize that. Um, and it's, I mean, it's true of bringing on any kind of new population to your board. If you are suddenly saying, we want to go from all men to men and women, if we're saying we want to go from all Gen Z to, you know, some other, you know, demographic shift that's going to bring about it new ideas new concepts new ways of operating and boards are not ready for that yeah i think that is the number one barrier they say they want diverse backgrounds but they don't want diverse ideas they want things to continue the way they've always operated and that will not work well going back to your list because we like had we started a list and then we started a different list about yeah, sub list, but going back, to, going back to the original list, <clears throat> um, and it's kind of all the things that you talked about fit into this is around you really need strategy and um, be intentional in your board recruitment process. Because I can't tell you how many places I've worked where their board recruitment was one person shows up and says, Hey, I'm interested in being on your board, and they say, Okay. Yeah, and that's oh, it. Totally. That's it. Yeah. Like maybe mm -hmm. there's a coffee, you know, and then it's like, okay, so and so's joining our board. And there's not a real process of how to do all the things that you're talking about, you know? Like where are we even reaching into? Like how are we advertising this opportunity? How are we communicating it into mm -hmm. the different networks and places that we want it to go? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who's seeing it? Who knows about it? Totally. 
And are you actually showing up in those spaces? Right. I, I mean, like pre-COVID, we talk about that all the time. Are you actually going to the events where you think these populations are congregating? Um, I had a client once be like, well, we, we put a flyer up here, there, and otherwhere, but they weren't actually there. Like no human actually attended. And I was like, how are you going to develop relationships? Right. Nobody sees a flyer and is like, yep, I am values aligned with that person and that organization. Let me commit a shit ton of time and sit on their board of directors to approve budgets. Right. It's not how it works. Yeah. You know, we also talked about like these larger perspectives and like learnings that need to occur. Um, I think this is especially true of our boards. Um, they need to understand their causal area and its relationship with racism and white supremacy, um, not only just so that they can be better ambassadors, but so they can ensure their the organization is addressing it effectively, but also that then they're relaying that out to potential candidates. Yes. I did have a client recently. Um, this was really fascinating. You know, we did that episode where we talked about uh, what happens after the statement, right? Like everybody comes out with their Black Lives Matter statement. Right. Here's our commitment. Now what the fuck are you going to do? Right. Um, so it was an organization like that, but they actually didn't put out much of a statement. Um, mm-hmm. they, they didn't say the words that a lot of people thought. And so they had a candidate come forward and say, hey, I was looking through your social media and your website, and I didn't really see you take a position. And based on the work you do, it feels like there's a significant history of racism in this field and would love to know your your perspective on it. And the board member couldn't answer. Wow. I mean, I think we need to be ready that board members with, again, more diverse backgrounds are going to be looking at things a bit more closely. Right. They're not just looking to their buddy at the country club who says, come join me on a board. Right. Or just to add something necessarily to their resume. Right. So button that shit up. Be ready. Make sure your board is ready to have that conversation. And if they're not, maybe you're not actually ready to diversify. Right. And I know that's not a popular sentiment, especially right now. I've got, I, I see it constantly. I mean, everybody is running to fix their demographics on the board. And not every board is actually ready for that. Well, and so what happens, what could potentially happen, is that then those boards that haven't done the work, maybe they still do find a candidate um, with a diverse background that says, okay, I'll join your board, and then has a really shitty experience. Exactly. I mean, the, the threat of actually perpetuating racism and tokenism with a new person of color on the board is so high. That risk is just astronomical, and that's where boards should really stop and and take note. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really powerful of uh, if you're going to do the work or if you want that outcome, you have to do the work and you have to yep. be ready. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Well, we covered a lot in this episode. I don't even remember where we started or where we've been, but I feel like that that was a meaty one. We went, there was a spectrum from from beginning with uh, annual evaluations to road trip stories to um, board diversity. But that was good. I mean, that's, again, this is all meant to be like you're sitting here having a conversation with us and these are what our conversations are like. Very truly. 
Okay, so if you have anything to say about any of the things that we talked about today, please, we want to hear from you. We love it. It makes our day. It makes our week. Please. I love please. how intensely you're <laughs> pleading with them. <laughs> we will run out of stories one day. And so really? we... I don't know. And I'm just I saying that. So. I'm trying to coerce people. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. To share we this. will. We will. Or people will get tired of hearing our stories one day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll still have them, but people will be like, I know, you've already said that one. Um, so please, get in touch with us. How can they do that? They can email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. We do check it every day. So please email us. I might not get back to you that day, but we have a look. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Nonprofit Reframe. Um, and make sure that you're sharing some of the content. Uh, we would love to get a few more folks following us on our socials, especially going in to our one-year anniversary and some Woo-hoo! special content. <laughs> so fun. So fun. Um, and as always, you know, we're still – Everyone here is fighting the good fight, working our tails off, um, and it's hard. 2020 is hard. And so we see you, um, and we empathize with all of you, and we just want to remind you that if you have capacity at this time and are able to support your local nonprofits, please do, um, please give and give generously. Thanks, everybody. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.